The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We're working every day to apply scientific insights and methods to improve district policies and programs. Learn more at thelab.dc.gov. If you live in a city experiencing rapid urbanization, you know it's hard to agree on how to inclusively utilize important urban goods. Open squares, parks, abandoned or underutilized buildings, vacant lots, cultural institutions, streets, and other urban infrastructure. What practical tools and governance forms can residents and policymakers rely on to come to a satisfactory agreement? I'm David Yoakum, and today we're joined by Sheila Foster, professor of law and public policy at Georgetown University, to talk about the Coast Cities Project that investigates new forms of collaborative city-making that are leading urban areas towards participatory urban governance, inclusive economic growth, and other forms of social innovation. Sheila Foster, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. A theme throughout your work is around collective decision-making in government. I know you also have a sort of a long-running theme about thinking about how we manage properties in our cities and communities. I'm actually curious to just start off about how you came into this work personally. Like, why do you work on this rather than so many other things that you could? So I was born in Detroit and partly raised there and then later raised in Miami, Florida. In both of those communities, we were pretty much kind of middle class, but we interacted because my father's store and my mother's church was in a low-income community. And it always struck me that, you know, poverty and social vulnerability and kind of uh, underserved communities um, at the end of the day, um, are disempowered along a number of kind of factors or axes. Um, one, of course, they lack resources, um, you know, sometimes actual money and services. But, you know, sometimes they're disempowered because they lack voice um, in a system in which the way we distribute resources and goods in society is through a system of representation in which you can appeal to your lawmakers or you can appeal to the government or or you can be a part of those it strikes me that the most disadvantaged communities were the most disempowered and that spilled over into when i started doing environmental justice work any region you look in all you have to do is figure out where most of the pollution is and you can pretty much tell that you know nine times out of ten the community will be poor and most likely you know latino or african-american and part of that is because developers and even the local government, state governments, when they decide where this stuff should go that benefits all of us, we all need our waste process, we all need these, you know, industries, where they'll face the least resistance, where people have the least power. So that all comes back to me, this question of property and resources and who gets to decide to who gets to say. Right. And very concretely, you're talking about things like where a power plant's located, where a garbage dump is going to be. Do we know that this, sort of the directionality of this, are the plants placed in poor locations or are plants placed and then property values start to depress over time? Both, I think, to be fair. But, and also to be clear, I'm not just talking about plants and things that actually 
are what we would call stationary sources. You put them and there's constant pollution coming out, but, but freeways, highways. So look what Robert Moses did in New York when he put, you know, ram freeways everywhere. He rammed them through working class communities of color. And freeways, you know, are sources of pollution because cars are constantly on there. Or in New York City, most of the depots where the public buses go to idle and get service were in communities of color. You know, the buses serve everybody, but yet when they go to fuel up and they have to stand and they pollute constantly, those are actually there. Now, why are they there? In some cases, um, we found that they were put there while the communities were low income because of or restrictive access to where people can afford to live. So to me, even if they're not put there, that doesn't answer the question about whether there's unfairness because we also live in regions in which people are priced out of some server. There's continuing housing discrimination, and that's been documented. So the people that have the, the least amount of choice to get away from this stuff, to go to the suburb, to go to, are actually restrained both by poverty and by race and ethnicity. Um, And so it turns out the political economy, this stuff is complicated. But at the end of the day, if the question is, why does it end up like this, regardless of the causal mechanisms, like if we do have to unpack what the larger political economy is, how people move around, how they choose their location, whether they do have free choice to buy, you know, whether they can afford things. I argue it's an injustice, whether they were put there when they were poor, black, and brown, or whether poor, black, and brown people ended up there. So one of the terms of art in this literature is the commons. What is the commons? And maybe give a few very concrete examples. So the commons is a term that was popularized by a 50-year-old essay, The Tragedy of the Commons. And really, the commons is everything we share. The typical commons is air, right? Climate change is a tragedy of the commons because we all have this resource that we share as a globe, and we all get to put into it, extract from it (laughs) as much as we want. We're all rational actors. We do it for various reasons. And at the end of the day, because it's open access and you can't exclude it raises a question of how we should manage our a resource in which we all share, in particular one that's subject to destruction. And that's a classic commons, is, is to get a little wonky about it, a good that is non-excludable, but that's also exhaustible, right? And the tragedy is that there's bound to be tragedy because people won't cooperate and figure out how to use it for sustainability. They won't control themselves. They'll just keep taking out because they're rational actors. So what's the commons in cities, right? So we see parks. So Central Park or the National Park can be a con- if it's not regulated. So the problem with bringing the commons city is that we do have regulations in place. But they can become destructible if, for instance, we get too many people and too many demands on them. The streets can get over congested. The park, you know... Different kinds of users come on. Families and kids want to be there. People who have dogs who want to be there. And sometimes, you know, bad actors want to be there. And what happens if they all come together and it's rivalrous? Usually we have a system of land use controls, but not always. Sometimes there's slippage in that system. Um, And so it becomes like a traditional commons. Um, The streets get overly congested. So now we want to do congestion pricing because there's a tragedy. That's not the way that I'm using it, although one can map that kind of commons onto a urban environment and find lots of tragedies. But the way I'm using it is going back to first principles, which is to say a common resource, something that is commonly held, we have common interest in that should be a common good. The commons is a kind of claim that it's ours in common. 
you know, here in the district, things like green park spaces, making sure we have thoroughways to build roads to different parts of the neighborhood, having access to the Anacostia River for people that want to go kayaking. These are things that if you left it to the private market, potentially people would just, you know, overrun the land with condos and private uses. And then other people who didn't literally own that parcel of land wouldn't be able to use it for those other more common goods. What are the historic types of things that government typically does? Right. So government typically regulates for accessibility and wide accessibility and use. They say, listen, we have a park or we have a stream. And so every different kind of person should be able to use it. So we're going to set use so that, hey, the dogs can go over there. The kids with families can go over there. But after dark, maybe you don't want to bring the kids and family because we're going to let the homeless park out. So government typically organizes all the interest and figures out the right rules with, we hope, participation by all the stakeholders. And it's the classic regulatory function of government. What happens when the interests that are speaking in the government's ear and helping to set policy are narrower and narrower? Not because other people don't exist, but because they're the moneyed interests. So the government says, oh, we can no longer take care of them all. So, hey, we're going to let this private actor govern it. That's called the privatization of public good. Or maybe it'll be a public-private or a franchise partnership in which, fine, we own the streets, we own these things, but we're going to let Verizon provide X and only Verizon. And we begin to turn what are public goods into something else. The Commons is open access shared resource. Then a lot of the move to want to come up with a different way of thinking about city resources and urban resources and also who gets to say what happens to them is because there is a feeling that the interests that have influence on government are narrower and narrower, be they corporate interests or homeowner interests. So for instance, a lot of people feel like cities have gotten so unaffordable in spite inclusionary zoning. Why? Because it's not just the developers coming in and building new condos, but it's at the people in neighborhoods have property interest, they bought into it, they want to keep their values up. So they're unlikely to want more density to build higher. They're unlikely to want to put a lot more multifamily because they think their value is going to go. And those interests now have gotten powerful. They're people in the city, but they're a slice. They're property owners. And so to press for a little precision on one thing you say was around who has the voice of government actors that are making decisions about, you know, zones and permits and things like that. Do you literally mean channels for people to voice opposition? Or do you mean if you're thinking there just aren't the right channels for people to say their objections publicly, then the kind of solutions would be in the direction of having better forums for having these types of discussions. But I think you're saying even when you have these existing forums to do this, it's not quite enough. Right. None of these communities want this stuff. But when the communities complain, who do who gets heard and how do the decisions end up mostly in the favor of the people with more influence or that have more money, pay more in property taxes, or mostly not. For instance, zoning, right? Zoning, we have zoning rules. Okay, it's a regulated commons. We say you can put stuff here, so that not there, but you know, we have exceptions to those rules called variances that are given in the discretion of a city. One study in New York found that variances are actually the rule, not the exception. Who gets the variances? It's a, it's a pattern. 
The variances are by particular kinds of property interest, um, often developers, right, who want to come and do something different, sometimes existing, but they're not going to other kinds of folks, right? And so in a pure democracy in which we have participation panels, in which a lot of people, you would have winners and losers, but not always the same losers. And so I think, and even if we can't measure that, there's enough of a sense that people feel that way, that people feel that cities are too expensive and the and the cultures that were there can no longer stay there, the people that... So some of these frameworks are really designed as an intervention. Another way of thinking about this is that the commons are more likely to be appreciated by more people. And so you might have an intuition of, if you're a politician, a nice way to court more votes is to invest in commons. I mean, I think you maybe see a similar concern sometimes with why social programs tend to always expand is because it's very, you make enemies by trying to contract what the most amount of people can have access to. It's almost ironic that you don't, you're sort of suggesting the pressure is different in this case. We don't see that temptation for politicians to overinvest in commons because that's the way to get access to the most amount of voters. Right. The reason is this, historically, is that we're not in a Robert Moses area. Robert Moses had so much power to reshape New York City and folks like him in all these cities because the federal government used to give money to cities to develop. So you could serve the public. You got public money. You're not beholden to anyone. You basically say, okay, it's in the discretion of the city to figure out how to allocate that, whether to build parks, whether to build you know, housing or you know, new freeways. But today, that's not how it works. Cities chase mobile capital. And cities are competing for mobile capital. That's why there's a big to-do about where's Amazon's next headquarter going to go. They're giving tax break. They're giving variances because those are the people that are going to bring in the money. They're going to fill up the condos that we can tax people on. They're going to bring in the jobs. They're going to draw people here that will want to be in the city. And then they have a, a multiplier effect, and that'll create a service industry, people who need their nails done, people who need Uber, Lyft. It's anchored by capital, and cities compete for this capital. So in that environment, even if you have an administration and a mayor whose intuitions is toward what I think, you share the common goods more with everyone, you make sure everyone has a little bit, they're in a bind. So do you think mayors make a mistake as they try to compete over courting businesses like Amazon? First of all, I don't think they have a choice. Just the economic reality. They might have a choice in how much to give away, right? <laughs> so actually quite a bit of evidence that we understand cities have to compete by tax giveaways and tax breaks, but actually cities consistently give too much away when they don't need to. There may be on the margins a debate about whether cities give too much away to compete, but there's no argument about the need for competition. And it is global. Why don't we shift a little bit now to talking about sort of alternative visions for how governance of things like the commons could potentially happen. And here's where the work you're doing on co-cities comes into play. And so maybe just as a threshold question, could you say a little bit about what a co-city is and maybe give a few examples? A co-city is an environment, a city, which is facilitating, enabling, or at least the city itself and its rules and the things it allows residents and neighborhoods to do, um, it's an environment in which it is easy to come together as users with other actors to, um, to make claims to resources that are in the commons, shared resources, and to use them to provide services and goods that residents need. So it's very resident-centered, very community-centered, it's very centered on needs, and 
I think it's two things. One is thinking about how the resources of the city are best utilized in a collaborative way, in, in a way that's innovative, that doesn't just have a central actor like an administration allocating, but actually brings more people into the center of that question. So moving from a monocentric governance regime to a polycentric, in which many people are at the center and maybe even many different kinds of resources in city like housing, parks, community gardens, farms, wireless, broadband, that there are some of those resources being governed at a lower level, a neighborhood level, in ways that are still connected to the city, right? So the city's allowing it somehow, it's nested within a city. It's both a resource issue, it's creating new kinds of common resources, but it's also a platform in which the city's basically loosening up its tight hold on resources and who gets to say how they're used and sometimes even how they're used to construct and produce new resources. For instance, I think the classic example of the kind of resource that you can turn into a kind of urban commons and govern, in a way, if the city allowed you, are community gardens and urban farms, right? The city says, hey, there's all this vacant land that we technically own because the private property owners have you know, walked away. And, you know, if you want to use it to create a place to grow food, to for green space, for people to get together, to have parties at night, you know, then you can do that. You just have to let us know what you're doing. You have to sign a lease. And so another example is um, what we're doing in Harlem, trying to create a community broadband network just for Harlem. Or if a community wanted to create a microgrid because they're a community that suffers from high levels of death from urban heat and their infrastructure fails a lot in a residential building. So these are some of the things that people are thinking because this community doesn't have access to broad, like one in three households in New York City and communities of color don't have access to broadband. Uh, people who live in the South Bronx or people who live in Ward 7 and 8 here may not have places to go during urban heat. Can we use a city-owned building that's not being used to create a center, a cooling center where people can go? Can we put that into a community land trust in which it's governed by the users, but also it has others that sit on there. Those are the kinds of examples in cities that where we see a lot of those kinds of resources being collectively governed to serve different kinds of communities, we call that a co-city. And then we ask, well, why? What's the city doing? It turns out that the city is facilitating and enabling this, and that their policies are such. And so just to mm-hmm. press a little bit mm-hmm. here, I'm curious to what extent you think this is a different vision of government, because it's coming through my mind now is that there exist, you know, we elect people into office, we have comment periods on regulations, there are different panels and advisory groups here in the district, we have advisory neighborhood commissions, there's a lot of different channels, at least, you know, structurally, it seems to do things like come together to take those parcels of lands and apply for a new permit for how it gets used or to make a nonprofit to buy it and turn it into gardens. Is there something that's not working about those existing features that you think the co-city approach is able to avoid because of something that's unique about it? Yes, I do think a lot of people feel that those those councils, those community, those advisory groups are places where people spend a lot of time giving input. And at the end of the day, they're just not sure their input is heard because more often than not, they feel the city does what it's going to do anyway. One of the ways that I got into thinking through this in the urban context is 
with you know community gardens in New York, where when one of the mayors came in, Giuliani, and wanted to destroy or sell off hundreds of community gardens all over the city because it's it's city land, it could do that to build new housing. And the claim is is that wait a minute, <laughs> you can't just take back this. And this is actually yes, we can. And so a better process would have been to put it to some panel commission or even the planning department to figure out what the community gardeners wanted, how many we could save, how many we couldn't. But because New York was coming back in the pressure of needing new development, you know, the city really had no interest in doing that. And so th- this is the kind of, of thing or reason people feel like government doesn't work because when powerful interests come in and the government needs money, back to our early conversation, that's going to win out. Not for not because they're corrupt politicians, but because that's the reality today. And there's no, they don't have enough of incentive to balance those interests or enough time maybe even to go around and to talk to each of the communities and say, now who needs a garden here? Who does a garden there? Because those conversations take place on a more sub-local level. And it turns out the community advisory boards and councils, although important, become captured themselves by even sometimes the strongest voices or or sometimes they're just perfunctory exercises. So another example is participatory budgeting, which a lot of cities have moved towards. But there, it used to be that the government says, we have a budget, and we're going to try to figure out which what each you know, neighborhood needs through these participatory processes. But now, why are governments saying, you know what? We're going to set aside $5 million and give each neighborhood a set amount and say, you figure it out. Okay, and so what happens is they have assemblies in these neighborhoods, they bring people together, they propose projects, they vote on them, and then out of that process they tell the government, here's what we think we need better, here's how to spend this money. In our community we have local knowledge, you know, uh, local expertise, there's a process that they create that's a little bit more egalitarian, and it actually has influence. Because the government then, the, the council then has to vote on those. But we know how they're ranked, and part of the process is that they will vote in the highest vote-getter. Curious, even more kind of implementation mm-hmm. to make up a word, how the power is getting distributed here? Because it helps to stick with a very concrete example. There, there are a couple of vacant lots near where I live. Mm-hmm. And let's say I wanted to tomorrow start a co-city type of approach to this. I go knock on my neighbors on my street on my block in in the whole neighborhood how do like how do you start to scope out right. who this who the different entities are that ultimately get a voice in this there is actually a process that's followed that there is some convener some convener sometimes it's a city right so new york city has a policy or um, other cities have uh, similar policies on community land trust they say if you want to use any vacant land or any underutilized building in the city, uh, we're going to set aside money to help you do that. And it's a call for people to come forward, a group of people to come forward. Without that policy, and let's say, so I cited uh, Dudley Street, okay, a low-income neighborhood outside of Boston. And they said, we've got all these vacant properties, and there was a Dudley Street neighborhood initiative. Usually there's some anchor institution. That's what I'm getting at. If it's not being coordinated, let's say, within the city, there's usually an anchor institution in the community that's a convener. And they're normally the ones that we see start the conversation. You know, what do we want to do with all these vacant lots? Can the city, in that case, they went to the city and then the state. The state can give, in that particular instance, you know, I talk about the state is enabling this. There, the actual state of Massachusetts gives some 
community or, or can give a 501c3 their eminent domain power. That's in Massachusetts. So they allowed this Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative to take the property of private property owners who had left it vacant. And then the city combined that with some of its vacant lots, and they created a whole urban village in which they put into a community land trust. You know, years-long process. And what do they need? So they decided, we want some affordable housing. We want some community green space. We want some parkland. We want some playgrounds for kids. We need spaces for a community center. And so that's the kind of process. But again, it, it was initiated by a group that was actually formed. So coming back to your example, you're a resident. You go around. You say, hey... What do you think we should do with all this vacant land our property? Let's uh, get people together. You start meeting. You have a group of 10. You have a, a group of 50. Let's call ourselves the blah, blah, blah street neighborhood initiative. And then we get the word around. Then we start talking to other people. We go to the city. You technically own this land. Can you help us, et cetera? And we see that happening in places, in even big cities, in which I mentioned today the real estate investment cooperative in a huge city in which people around the city are trying to come together on a citywide, not a neighborhood basis, to say artists and others are being pushed out of the city, small business owners. Can we stabilize these neighborhoods by saving some of these commercial and artistic spaces, putting them in some form that will be collaboratively governed. I talk about the enabling or facilitative state, which is to say that the city's enabling or facilitating not by being the convener, not by, but by saying, we're going to put a, a little incentive out there in participatory budgeting. We're going to give you, you know, hold aside some of this. And it really is up to those communities to galvanize and to say, oh, hey, you know, we'll have a problem. If not, the city always can say, okay, so we'll just tell you what your options are. It's not quite bottom up nor top down, I guess what I'm suggesting. And that's why I say it's a coming together. And that's what we call it a pooling economy, just like they're being pulled to do something because the resource that the city is now saying is going to be a little bit more open, accessible, and also able to be collaboratively decided upon and share. If you give someone a resource, if you say show up at this meeting, not sure what you're going to get. You get to comment on what we think we want to do anyway. A lot of people say, I have two jobs. I'm not going to do that. But if you say, hey, what if we offer you a resource? And all you have to do is tell us what you need to use it better, you know, what needs you need it to meet. If you can create a process that will figure out how you guys want to use that, then we'll help you. What do you think of the boundary conditions here? Are places where the Coast City approach shouldn't be used or is maybe less effective than more centralized planning? I'm not sure it's a boundary issue. It's more, I think it comes back to the preconditions for a co-city or for any of these kinds of institutional forms of governing urban resources or services can arise even at the neighborhood level. I mean, I have seen that in places that don't have a, any tradition of or low levels of social capital. People aren't working together. There aren't already civic neighborhood organizations, civil society. That Then I think this would be hard because you'd be trying to create that from... You know, you could do that. You could create that kind of cozy, and then you'd have to work with the government, and the government would have to trust. I think it works best where there are, and it turns out this is most places, particularly, and, and ironically, the bigger the city, I think, and the more people are attached to neighborhoods, you see that there are active anchor institutions or active right. point of places where social capital, sometimes the community gardens and the urban farming and very poor, you know, that's where it happened. That's just not people that live there, That, but that people that come in and want to help out. What about you know, NIMBY-style problems down yeah. in my backyard where 
the sort of brownstone neighborhood that's right. going to suddenly want a seven-story condominium built there. But maybe that is the sort of expansion of housing that's needed in a geographic area. Right, right. The coast city and the, a lot of the examples we're mapping are not in neighborhoods that can use money and political power and economic power to get what they want from the traditional city. One of the things that I and the people that I'm working with have come to is that this is really a framework for neighborhoods that are underserved and that are vulnerable in some way that aren't able to compete on that field, that political or economic field in which there are clear winners and losers and the winners always have more than you do. That's what drew me to the comments. Hmm. It's like, where do we see this happening? So let's scope a little bit down outside of America to the the developing world, right? What do we see happening there? We see people building entire communities on the outskirts of cities, informal settlements. This is where the idea of the commons was born with me because I was in Bogota and traveling around Latin America. I was like, this is incredible. Like we think of these as slums, but some of these communities are all built up. They've got roads. They've got like completely outside of the formal planning system. They built their own community in a real way. And the city's trying to figure out actually how to connect with, how to formalize the informal. And I and so it came to me on that trip, which was like back in 2001, it's like, wow, we need to think about this the way that we, that we think about the environment. And because I was invited. And these are kind of resources that are, it's just land. It is the commons. It's a hard kind. People come and they cooperate together. It's just like Ostrom said. They're figuring out, they're working together. They're building things. And then they're figuring out, you know, figuring out safety in the settlement. They're figuring out how to get water in. So what would that look like? It does come from, in some sense, necessity. I don't want to say necessity, but a lot of these examples happen to involve, and I think no mistake, and that's why the commons, I think, is a normative disruptive term. It is a, It aligns with what I would say is the right to the city movement, which is an international movement, which is, hey, we have a right to the city. I don't use that language because I thought, well, right to what? Is it right to housing? Right. And so for me, it's the right to the city is the commons. I mean, I guess part where my mind starts to twist a little on this is if I think very hyper-local, I can sometimes identify the winners and losers maybe clearly. If there is that high rise that's built, the developers maybe make a good deal of money. Maybe the people that immediately live there, they either stay there and don't like the facility or maybe some are pushed out. But if I start to expand the kind of ring of people I'm considering, mm-hmm. whenever that housing high-rise is built, rents start to go down in the region. And so it's helping low-income individuals living elsewhere. Maybe it creates housing that people who've wanted to live, say, in the district but can never afford it, they suddenly can. How do you balance the effects that kind of are driven by the sort of local decision-making, the possibility of benefiting a wider net who aren't participating in those co-city like, how do you draw the circle? Of- I don't think that's thinking about the right way because these aren't anti-development in any sense. These aren't anti-development. I think they're more about how do we coexist with what's happening. Big condos are going to be built. They're going to stop that. If we're saying, hey, let's preserve some of the city for people who can't afford the big condos, these aren't groups that are often even political and saying, shut this down, don't do that, you know. But they're more like, okay, you're going to put that there and you're going to gentrify Noma. So I live in Noma here going to start putting up condos. But you know what? There's all this vacant space. Now, can we also do this here? Why does the city have to take everything and put condos there? Mm-hmm. 
and density can get you aggregate social welfare in that sense. You can put as many people up if you go up. And I think the biggest enemy of that are existing private property owners who want, don't want to lose their air rights. It's not people who want to build a common, a common resource. One claim embedded in this is that there may be enough room for all of it. But we can't have it both ways. We both can't have restrictive land use laws and say that some people have air rights or a right to a view in a city at the cost of other people not being able to stay there. And I think that that's not, the commons is not your enemy there. The Co-Cities Project that you're a leader in, where a lot of these ideas are being tried in 100 cities across the, across the globe, I'm curious how you'll what success looks like, how you're sort of thinking about it, and how will you yeah. measure it? Like, how will we actually know whether these ideas are working or not? Because I take it it's still an open question. Right, it is. So what we're trying to do is understand what's going on, and those are the design principles, kind of extract from them what's common across a lot of these examples. So we do have coding of these. So when we say, let's say for each design principle, tech justice, what does that mean? I mean, there's tech inclusion, then there's tech justice, collective governance, there's kind of participation, but then there's co-creation. For each of the ways that we understand each of the characteristics of these projects, there's a spectrum in terms of what they really look like, you know, whether they're truly collaborative with all the actors, how much the state is actually involved. That is the extent to which we'll be measuring something. We're not going to say successful or not. It's more that hey, this stuff is happening. These are new forms of using resources, governing resources, making them more shared, making them more accessible, making them more affordable. And they also meet some of the goals that we're interested in, such as social justice goals, people's right to stay there. What do they look like? How do we understand them? What role does the state have? So we're really trying to figure out how it all works. In terms of success, the only thing we're saying about that is that they should be experimental. There needs to be some kind of longitudinal study that says, like, are these able to sustain themselves? Are they able to survive? And if so, what does that look like? Because these things are kind of so new. I mean, there are some classics. I think Dudley Street happened in the 70s and 80s outside of Boston, and that was written about. But that was such an outlier at the time. Now that's no longer an outlier. So what happens if that's happening all, you know, Puerto Rico, Amsterdam? I mean, wow, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And what does it look like? And how can we, is it scalable? Is it replicable? And if so, how? And what processes do should we think about if we want to replicate this someplace? And that's really all we're doing right now because it's all we can do because the kind of sustainability, we suspect that one reason why you have it nested in government, that the city's involved, is that that's a way to sustain because we've had over time co-ops and all these kind of institutions that are individual and sometimes they last sometimes they don't because they really are closed settings they depend on the people inside them and to some degree these do too and once you have these learnings who are you going to take them to i mean who do you think you're trying to convince who are the biggest skeptics if you will are likely to push back against this idea so there are a lot of skeptics right some people say oh but we're concerned that just like a few people will take over this resource and that's just another form of privatization why would we want that so that's one kind of skeptic i think we have an answer to that which is you know this is why governance important is important we don't want a privately governed resource that's a that's a traditional co-op that's a that's a form of private property. It just has many owners. Other skeptics say, isn't this a form of government in the state shirking its responsibility to to give people public goods? Why should you create community? You know, the city should build affordable housing. 
the city should, you know, build good parks, give people fresh food. You know, why, why do we need gardens and broadband access should be a public good. That is true. And I don't think this is an alternative. I think we want instances where the city and the state is transferring those resources it would normally spend on these public goods and putting them in the hands of people who may know better and being able even to innovate in a way that cities can't because they're ossified sometimes. And this is where earlier, to use the example from New York about the vacant lots, I mean, they're it's kind of where earlier when I was kind of asking about the existing government processes, one of the things that was going through my mind is you could have imagined a world where the right, whatever agencies were overseeing those properties held, did outreach, talked to people, asked what they wanted, issued the proper permits. And so I guess if I'm a policymaker in New York in that example, one of the things I'd want to see is, is not just would it work to also go say, you know, give $10,000 to those different neighborhoods and say, do whatever you want with those vacant lots. I'd want to kind of compare it to the world in which I think about other ways we could have done the permitting discussion better and where the pros and cons between kind of improving our existing mechanisms. Like if they're not working right, is that an implementation issue that I need to fix? Or is there something that's kind of fundamentally broken about those that we really do need a totally different approach? The thing about classic participatory governance and participatory pride is that you know, developers will tell you this, residents, and, you know, cities. Yeah, you get paid to do that all the time, but a lot of people don't. That's a whole lot of process. And there's an actual shortcut that may get you that same. And that is you call people to you. So there's a push and there's a pull. The push is let's put community boards in every neighborhood. Let's make them be invited. Let's, let's have a lot of input and then we'll sit in a room and we'll figure out. But the pull is... We have these open resources. We already have developers coming to us. Can we call other people come to us to figure out? At the end of the day, it's an enabling state. The city doesn't have to give you the lease for the garden. It doesn't have to, you know, it still gets to balance. One thing that's key here is you're not giving policymaking authority at all to anyone. The city still, you're, all of these are operating with a shadow state. The city gets to set the policies, right, that it wants about we need more housing, and so housing is going to be our first priority, that doesn't mean that we're going to put housing on every vacant lot. (laughs) So we still have this question of how we, every city has acres and acres, thousands of acres of, their cities now without this aren't filling that up. It's a call. It's a lot more process to say, well, what are we going to do about these vacant lots? Like, let's go talk to people. Let's convene people. That's a push. But this is a pull. It's actually more in line, I think, with economic thought. You know, we have agglomeration economies. We want to get the creative class. Let's pull them here. Let's create the kind of things that will pull them. This is kind of the same thing, is that we have the right policies, and that's experimental in the city. We have to let go of the our hold on this stuff. Do you think there's a trust problem here? And I, I don't mean trust in government, which is what we almost always talk about, is people not having trust in government. I'm actually thinking in the other direction, which is, you know, the strong version of what I think you're describing is we're going to give you real power to make decisions about what's going to happen with this plot of land and here's some are the budget here's ten thousand dollars in this plot of land and you get the power like you get to decide you think people are worried about what's likely to, to happen in those environments that causes a desire to have it continue to filter through the hearings the permits the processes where there's always still just a little bit of a finger of control that's on what's happening in none of these examples is the city relinquishing that power it's policymaking power. I think that's very important. And none of these examples, not with, and even the more classic examples of these kind of sub-local institutions like bids, 
they still have, you're breaking off. So when I teach property, I talk the bundles and the sticks in the bundle of property rights. When a landlord leases you something, they've still got all the sticks there breaking off the possession. All the city is breaking off a piece of it and saying, we used to hold all the sticks and we used to manage them and we've all this, but actually sometimes it's, it's in our interest and it's more innovative sometimes and it's more fair and you distribute a little more and we get people more power and they feel better more empowered to do this which is why why has participatory budgeting which started in a small city in brazil now spread to hundreds of cities around the world people will show up no matter how poor they're it's a myth oh people are too poor they have too many no 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 you give them something you offer them something real, they may not show up to the community meeting. They've done enough of those. That's a waste of their time. But the commons is kind of redistributing. They say, if you say, hey, what if we give you some money and you decide how to spend it, participatory budgeting? What if we allowed you, we put the possibility, as New York has done, and say community land trust to put some of those old abandoned buildings into a trust and we'll help you because the city does. It may be a brownfield, you may have to clean up, but the city's put aside some millions. That's enough to get some people in a room. Why are people disempowered in neighborhoods? It's voice, but also they don't have goods, resources. The city is a resource. That's why I like the commons instead of the rights framing, because we're talking about resources. You give people resources, they'll figure out how to make time. Sheila Foster, thanks for joining the podcast. The podcast at D.C. is brought to you by The Lab at D.C., an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. The show is hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Carissa Minnick. Check out our archive of conversations on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you subscribe to podcasts.